welcome everybody to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and very thrilled to have with me today, Shenandoah Shuffalo, and I have her as the faculty member for the Center for Trauma Resilient Communities, and I have to read because my menopause brain goes, what? and forgets it, so, but I am author of three books, and the bio is just amazing, so welcome. Thanks for having me, Terry. I'm so glad to be here with you and all of your listeners. Oh, wonderful. I'm just, again, thrilled to have you here. So, yeah, talk to us about what it is you've been doing. So the Center for Trauma Resilient Communities was born out of some work that was already happening at the Crosnor School and Children's Home in North Carolina. So the Crosnor School and Children's Home uh, houses foster children in Western North Carolina. They have three locations in Western North Carolina. They've been running for about 100 years now actually over a hundred years, I guess, we, we've hit that mark. And um, they've been using what's known as the sanctuary model of care. And really the outcomes that they were seeing for kids are extraordinary and the types of things that they're doing on their campus is extraordinary. And they were getting inundated with calls about, hey, help us do what you were doing. And it was sort of taking away from their underlying mission of serving children and families. And so they started um, the Center for Trauma Resilient Communities to do just that, to help organizations learn how to embed and embody the work of trauma science and resilience, to change outcomes for children and families in their organizations and their communities individually. And so I was fortunate enough to be asked to come on staff of that. Uh, I, I met Krosnor when I was writing one of my first books, Garbage Bag Suitcase and sort of was writing about the good work that they were doing and how we could duplicate that. And then I was asked to come on board to do some of that training and consulting work. And it's amazing to watch how fast it's grown in just over a year already and all the different pockets that we're able to do this great work in. Yes, and again, beautiful. And you, you have a personal history, yes, which is what your first book is about, correct? Yeah, so I wrote Garbage Bag Suitcase in 2016, it was published, which was a memoir of my time before, during, and after foster care. So I was a youth who aged out of foster care at 18. I was never adopted, and I never reconciled with my biological family. And so the research for that book led me to Krasnor, which is how I first came in contact with them and the great work that they were doing. Um, and that book was the culmination of keeping a 20-year secret that I had even been in foster care. Mm -hmm. So I had made a promise to myself when I turned 18 that I would never talk about that. I think oftentimes when we go through something very difficult, we think, gosh, I'm the only one. <laughs> right? There's, right. there's no one out there who would understand this hurt and pain. Um, and I was really ashamed and embarrassed of my situation. I had guilt. Um, I felt that I had turned the, my back on my biological family. On top of that, the trauma of enduring the abuse, both physical and emotional, that I suffered before and during foster care. And so I really made a promise that I would never talk about it because it came with also a lot of pain about people making judgments about hearing that you're a foster kid and then saying things like, well, what'd you do, right? What, you know, were you a runaway? Were you, right, trying to label you as a delinquent or that something was wrong with you? And so I really made a commitment to myself to never tell anyone my story. 
And Terry, I was so good at it. I, I held up that commitment for over 20 years, actually. And so I've been married for 23 years. Um, and when I say I kept that secret, I didn't tell my spouse. I didn't tell my daughter. I didn't tell anyone. And I had what outwardly appeared to be like a really good life. I, I had been married. I had a job, right? I was successful in all of those sort of tick the boxes idea. And I was um, coming to a crossroads, really. Um, my husband and I both worked in a criminal defense law firm. My husband's an attorney, still practicing, and I was an administrator. And we were having questions about how we could help our clients make better decisions, right? And so when I say that out loud, it sounds silly that that's where we started, but that was sort of the question we were having is like, how could we just help these people make better decisions so they wouldn't come to the criminal justice system? And so I went back to school, got a coaching certificate, and then really started coaching our clients, still with this big secret lingering for me, right? Like, because it's not my personal development, of course, that needs any work. It's everyone else's personal development that needs work. Not me. This has nothing to do with me. This has to do with me helping other people. And so I started coaching those clients really not about their crimes or what led up to their crimes, but really about what had happened to them as children, what their past, how they had reconciled that. And really what I started to hit on was that a lot of our clients had spent time in foster care. And that idea that so many of our clients, and it ended up being upwards of 90% of our clients had spent time in foster care, that I just started, again, not internalizing that. This doesn't have anything to do with me, but I started doing some research about foster care and outcomes and then realized, like, I'm not the only one. And finding, like, 500,000 kids in care and half of the boys who age out will have a felony conviction by 19 and a half. And, and looking at statistics, like, 1.6 million people incarcerated in our nation and 1.2 million are former foster youth. I sort of said, wait, right. this, is, this is like a root cause issue to things like addiction and homelessness and uh, failure for people to get high school diplomas and so many social issues that I was cared about, was passionate about just as a citizen. And then there was this part of me that said, but wait, I was in foster care and I didn't go to prison and I didn't have, so why, right? And so it was really this trying to understand what had happened for me that didn't happen for other people and trying to reconcile that. And so I actually came home from work one day and told my husband, Hey, I think I want to write a book. And my uh, beautiful supporting husband said, that's amazing. But about what you haven't really done anything. <laughs> and so we had to have this long conversation about my past, what had happened. And eventually my husband heard most of the stories in the first manuscript of Garbage Bag Suitcase. And really the thought behind that book wasn't, I mean, I obviously never set out to write a book about my story because I was really intent on keeping it a secret. But it was this idea that how could I make people in society, just regular everyday people doing regular everyday jobs, care about this issue? And what I knew is that regardless of religion or political preference or race or social economic status, is that people really did care about their communities and society. And what most people were trying to do were little band-aids, right? They were 
They were trying to build a homeless shelter. They were trying to get people, um, you know, kids in foster care backpacks. They were trying to, you know, do all of these great works, but none of it was sort of addressing root cause issue. And I wanted to help people say, hey, let's get to root cause. Let's pull this thing up by, by its very roots so it can't spread any longer. And I wrote the book with the idea that if one person reads it, um, the world would be a little bit better. And that was my goal. And it turned out that a lot of people <laughs> ended up reading it. And it sort of spread faster than I could contain it. And um, I found myself sort of traveling around talking about the book and my experiences and the changes that I wanted to see specifically in foster care and what I thought would make bigger and better impact. And then that led to people saying, so help us do that. And so sort of relying on my coaching background and what I had been doing with clients, I said, this is what I know, not based on any side. <laughs> this is just what, what worked for me and what I've seen working for other people. And so that sort of made my career take a complete 180 degree turn that I wasn't planning on. Um, and then I suddenly found myself traveling 170 days a year, um, doing this amazing work, and then being invited to join the faculty at the center to do it on an even bigger scale, which has been incredible. And for me, it's every day of being with passionate people who really want to heal themselves and the people that they love and care about in their community. And I really can't think of anything better than that. Yeah, beautiful. You, you choked me up twice. I got teary-eyed because just, I mean, well, one, the statistics got me choked up, but beautiful about um, you taking this, what I call a gift from within the chaos. Right, yeah. That you found and offering out, it up to others, and that's just, to me, just just such a beautiful gift to the world. So thank you. Well, thanks. And I think that's one of the things people say, you know, if you could do it, would you do it differently? Or if you could change your past, would you? And the answer for me, even before this amazing part of my career was always like, no, because I feel like if I don't take the burden, then it gets put to someone else, right? Like somebody's going to endure that. And I would much rather it be me than anybody else because I know I can survive it because I did. Yes. And I, and uh, my sister, oh my and I, but yeah, we've said the same thing. Like we found our strength within that. Yeah. Within that and um, I, like, I wouldn't be me without it. Yeah. Like I'm not separate, right? Like that is why, like good or bad, that is why I am the way I am. And I sort of like me. So I don't really yeah. want to change it. And if I change that, then I change me and I might not like the new me. So yeah. um, I feel like each of us has a purpose and you know, we ask kids all the time. So I have a daughter who's a senior in high school, right? So the question is like, so what do you want to do? Where are you going to go to school? What are you going to be when you grow up, right? And there's like this pressure on it. And I thought, you know, if you would have asked me when I was a senior in high school, this is not at all the plan. Like, and I don't even know if it could have ever been the plan, right? Like, right. sometimes life has to occur and then it just sends you in these beautiful directions. And there are moments in there where I thought, where are you sending me? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, yes. 
because you're not always so sure about that plan. Right. right. And then so, there's other times that I'm like, um, God, if you could put a big neon sign on which direction I'm supposed to be going, that would be awesome. I would really, I, I'm good at following directions. And so sometimes <laughs> an arrow would be helpful. Yes, yes. Like, oh, this way. <laughs> um, and what I've also come to know is like, you can't also choose wrong, right? Right. Like, no matter which choice you make, you'll ultimately get there. Some are just straighter than others. Yes. I think we just continually get redirected back to yeah. our path. Yes. Yeah. And I think that was a big part of my healing with this book. So the book took me four and a half years to write. So by the, you know, from the day I had the idea of like, oh, I'll just do this to it actually being something in people's hands was four and a half years. And a lot of that's on me. There were days where I just like, I can't write. I'm, I'm finishing a manuscript for a book and I am right there with you. I have promised people now for over two years, you know, almost done. It's almost done. And I just, there's that last little bit and it's me. It's, yeah. it's, it's me and mine's more like, is this worthy of being out there? And, and that, oh, I had that question yeah. 6,000 times. Yeah. And um, so my husband and I had this conversation the night before the book came out, which was a similar conversation to the night before I had my daughter. So I was induced for, for my labor. So like I knew I was having my daughter, right? Like there was, it was scheduled, um, which is a great and, and really bad thing all at the same time. Right. And the night before my daughter was going to come, I remember saying to my husband, I think this is a really bad idea, right? Like, I'd like to back out. Right. <laughs> I'm not so sure I want to, right? Because you're just so nervous and, and all the what ifs and, yeah. and everything that comes with that. And it was a similar conversation the night before the book. Like, wait, I think I want to back out. Right. I can't do it anymore. Right. <laughs> and my husband pretty much said in both instances, the same thing, which was just take tomorrow, right? Like just worry about tomorrow, not, and I think that's with a lot of our fears. We try to project out this worst possible scenario for ourselves. And really, I think there's some health in saying, if you take that risk, what is the worst possible thing that can happen? And if you really start talking about it out loud, it almost always sounds ludicrous. Yeah. You know, I have, um, when I was coaching clients and they'd say, well, I can't take that new job because I just don't know. And I'd say, well, what don't you know about Will it last? Well, what if it doesn't? What if the job doesn't last? Like, well, I mean, then I couldn't pay my bills. And, and then what would you do? Like, most of us, like, the worst thing we can do is, like, we're not going to just do nothing, right? Right. <laughs> we're not going to just allow these things to happen to us. Like, we'll ask for help. We'll maybe take a job we really didn't want to make ends meet. Like, so if we start to, to play out that worst case scenario, I think there really is some healing in that, that it's just really our own mind trying to stop us from taking action. And that's why then it takes us four and a half years or two and a half yes. to write a manuscript. <laughs> yeah. Because it's our own fear of like, what if I do this and everyone hates it? Yes. Yeah. Right? Instead of like, what if I do this and everyone loves it? <laughs> like that is never our default position, right? <laughs> 90% of the time I'm like, all right, this is going to be great. It's going to go out there. Yeah. And that 10% that's like, mm, no. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, two things that I want to want to go back to that you had mentioned, and one I just want to relate for a second because I I worked in um, for an agency in town in Cincinnati in mental health division and worked in schools, and I remember sitting similar to you with your clients sitting with these kids because I worked in elementary mm-hmm. schools, and these kiddos. And my job was to engage with children who had been referred to me by teachers, principals, staff. Um, and if they needed then, I thought, further counseling, I could then do a referral to our, our staff, our therapists. So I would sit with these kids and things would come up that just had happened in my life. It happened in my life. It happened in my life. Sexual abuse and, you know, whatever it was, the, the physical abuse. And again, I did very similar to you, like, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. But yet I was experiencing during that whole time off and on these severe panic attacks, mm-hmm. never attributing it to my trauma history until I finally ended up in, I did a therapy called EMDR. Yeah. Then that shifted everything. But yeah, it was just, I just found it fascinating when you were talking that I so had that same experience. Yeah. And I think it's interesting about triggers, right? Cause that's essentially what's happening to you, right? You're getting tr- those stories of trauma are triggering your own trauma and then you're dealing with it. And I think that's one of the interesting things when I talk about root cause and like truly embedding and embodying this work is that most of us don't realize that we are walking around all the time, regardless of your background, you didn't have to be physically or sexually abused, but most of us are acting in what I call is trauma brain or survival brain. Yeah. So even if you just feel like your buttons are being pushed, right? Whether you're in traffic and somebody cuts you off and it just makes you want to explode. It's like, what is that really about? Like, and most of us don't take time to examine it, right? Because it's just so easy to blame the person who has cut us off in traffic. But on the same token, we all know that we ourselves have cut somebody off in traffic at some point or another, right? Like, if we logically talk about it, most of us will admit that, yes, there's been a time where we haven't been paying attention, where we've intentionally or unintentionally cut somebody off, etc. And when we say that, it's like, well, why does it make you mad? Well, they're not taking my safety into account, or it's disrespectful. Well, why did you cut them off? Yeah. And none of those things come up, right? (laughs) You weren't trying to be disrespectful. Like you weren't just sitting in bed thinking, I'm going to cut off the first Dodge Caravan I see today. Like, right. But it's this, this idea of how we personally do it. And when I'm with, with clients and I say, so like, what is that about? Like, why does that make you so mad? And it could be anything, right? Traffic is just sort of this benign thing we can all generally relate to, but it's like, whatever pushes your buttons, is never about the person you think is pushing your buttons. It has to do with that trigger in you and you turning into survival brain when that happens, the nails on the chalkboard, right? Whatever that is. And so most of us don't do that internal work to figure out what is that. And then we're in the survival brain. And then of course we walk into a store and we're short or rude to someone because we're still in survival brain and we don't see how that then transfers to the next person and becomes this contagious thing. And self-care in my mind, which we're hearing a ton about that new buzzword and wellness is really about, are you doing the internal piece yourself? Yes. Yeah. Like even those little things that you tolerate or put up with, 
Do you do that work to examine those? Now, some of us have bigger work to do as well. Like we have to figure that out and we have to talk about our sexual abuse, our physical abuse, the emotional abuse and neglect, um, the dysfunction that happened within our households. But, but we all have a piece of work to do. And I always say that I started doing this work selfishly because if I could get everyone else to do their work, it's so much easier for me to do my work, right? I mean, if everyone else has got their stuff under control, it is so much easier to do yours. But if everybody's a mess, it's way easy to focus on theirs and not on yours. And so I always say this work for me is completely selfish so I can actually do my work. Because I think that's the thing. It's like, how do we build that space so people aren't triggered? Because when you're triggered, you're not doing your best work for the rest of those kids, right? Or or the other people that you serve. And I would say we spend 90% of our time in our own trauma brain just surviving. Yes. But I think once we become aware of it, Mm -hmm. then it shifts. Because I know personally that shifted for me completely in the fact that I would notice if I was agitated, someone sitting at the green light with their head down, obviously texting. And I used to be like, you know, honk, go. (laughs) Now I'll say to myself, you know, all right, I'm going to give them a few seconds because maybe it's a text from, you know, a sibling saying, hey, mom's in the hospital. Maybe it's, you know, obviously they should not be texting and driving, but I also realized, okay, hold up a second. This is... This is not about me. Just for and so and then. Yeah, I, where are they? Right, like what's right. happening for them? That like this person who cuts me off in traffic. Like, what if they're going to be late and lose their job if they don't get there? Is my twenty seconds really right? Like, I yeah. don't know what's going on for them. Like, it could be a life or death situation. Right. I don't know. And so instead of going into my own survival break, I actually heard Rhonda Byrne say one time that it's like um, a pack of wild horses, right? Like you can jump on and be going crazy with a pack of wild horses, but you can also choose to get off. Like, like, and so I'm just choosing not to get on really. (laughs) Like, It's just not fun for me to go on that crazy, everyone's out to get me um, feeling, which is how I spent a good portion of 30 years of my life feeling. It was that everyone was after me. Right. And I needed to protect myself and survive against all these people who were just trying to cause me harm. And when I was finally able to say, wait a second, what is really going on here? That's when healing really began. Yeah, that's beautiful. Another thing that I wanted to go back to and I'll let you speak on it is when you had talked about how how did I make it through all this? When you started your research and saw these vast numbers in in so many ending up incarcerated or um, homelessness, addiction. And my sister and I, again, we've talked about this and said, what was it? And we finally came down to, you know, Grandma Kitty, our grandmother and her presence. And then resilient stuff started coming to the surface. And so I'm just curious if that's what you came down to with your book is that you had some sort of resilience built into your life. So I actually had to look at that for a really long time. It it wasn't so easy for me to pinpoint that singular person. And so I actually, in my background is an interdisciplinary social science, which I basically says, I want to know why people do the crazy things they do. 
<laughs> right? So I am, I have that science curiosity about why don't you do that of all things? And so I sort of started down a research thing, trying to solve my own mystery because I didn't have the grandma Kenny, right? So I was yeah. like, I, people kept asking me, well, what was it for you? And I was like, I don't know. I, you know, luck of the draw, like, you know, and I knew luck wasn't a great answer. So I started on the research and I actually stumbled on some research that was done at Harvard at the center of the developing child on resilience. And their work was amazing and astounding. And basically what they said is there's three things we can pinpoint. People don't need all three of these things. They don't need them for the whole length of the time that they're going through their dysfunction or their traumatic or adverse experience. But if they have it, it can sort of help them bounce back quicker, right? So this idea of grit, or I used to call it, put your big girl panties on, yeah. right? Like whatever, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I mean, I've heard it called like a trillion things. And we're all saying like, how come some people feel like, um, uh, an old training partner of mine used to say, how do we create more dandelions and less orchids, right? Like an orchid is so delicate and has to be cared for. And like any one little thing can like make it die. Right. right. But dandelions, like you can mow them over with a lawnmower <laughs> and they just pop right back up. It doesn't yes. matter. Right. So how do we make more dandelions and less orchids was always her thing. And so the people at Harvard said, you know, there's really three ways. And of course, in America, we have a study that tells us there's three ways, but we only focus on the first thing, even though they told us all three things matter. Right. And the first thing is a positive, stable adult relationship, which I think is what you and your sister point to with Grandma Kitty, right? Yes. But what they specifically told us about that is that it could be short-time relationships, that it, it, length of time didn't necessarily matter. It was more did it come exactly when it needed to come? And did that person be fully present with you during that time? Um, a connection to faith or spirituality is another one. And thirdly, the ability to master a skill of some sort. And the skill is less important than the idea of actually mastering something. Because what we know is, is if when you're in trauma brain, you're really in that reptilian part of your brain, right? The, the survival mode, fight, flight, freeze. And when you're getting and practicing to become really good at something, that pulls you up to executive functioning. And the idea of getting out of survival brain and into executive functioning begins to make you function differently, right? So all three of those things I can point to in my life at different times, right? So I had some really important teachers in my life, um, a gentleman in sixth grade whose classroom I was only in for about two weeks who said, you know, you're really amazing at that. You're going to do something really amazing in life. This is the first time as a sixth grader, someone had ever even said that to me. Right. And it was that statement that ultimately saved my life when I tried to attempt suicide as a freshman in college. Right. But, but, he didn't know that when he made those comments. He didn't know he was being a positive, stable adult. He didn't set out with that intent. He was just sharing a thought he had. Um, but I can point to that as a relationship. I had another teacher with a similar experience. Um, reading was a really big thing for me when I was a kid. It was a way for me to escape from my childhood. You know, I could fantasize my way into a book and be living a new life. In my household, it was also a very quiet activity, which was taken, you know, you weren't allowed to make any noise in my household. And so it's a very quiet, 
remote thing. And so developing that skill, I think, uh, was something that saved me more than once. So I think there's a lot of ways we can help people heal. But what I see from people who aren't healing is that they have no connection, right? Because what all three of those things have in my mind is relationship at the core. Yes. You know, someone wanted to teach you how to do something. Um, someone allowed you, you know, gave you time to become connected as a mentor, as a friend, as a grandparent, as an aunt, as an uncle, whoever, right? As a neighbor, as someone from church. All of these are really about relationships and our idea of being connected. And I think we know that isolation is the biggest killer among us. And the more someone feels isolated, the harder it is for them to heal and move forward. Yes, so very true. And what popped into my head was I ran into a soccer coach, <laughs> Kroger, at our, you know, our grocery store yeah. a few months ago. And I, I just threw my arms around her and hugged her. And, and later her daughter, I was telling her daughter, who I still know through Facebook, and said, oh, my gosh, I ran into your mom at Kroger and I hugged her. And she said, I know my mom told me and she's not a hugger, but she was so happy you hugged her. And <laughs> it was because she, she did. She had an impact in my life. She doesn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing that we sometimes don't accept responsibility for as just a citizen on this planet is that we have the opportunity to impact somebody's life beyond measure and not knowing it. Now, there are certain people who like they are trying to create impact, right? They become social workers or doctors or nurses or police officers or whatever it is with the idea like, I want to help, right? Like they're the helpers in the world, right? right? Teachers and all of these people. And I say it all the time. Those people are great and amazing. And I don't even know if they realize that sometimes the people you're going to help are like the people you come across in a grocery store, the people that you come across when you call an 800 number to cancel your cable bill, like, and the person's angry and distraught, like that's also a person. Yes. Um, there's some good work out there where there's this idea that trauma doesn't actually settle in the body for 21 days. And so if that's the case, and we don't know where anybody is in their 21 days, don't we really, every interaction is a chance to not let something settle in someone's body, right? Yeah. Can you imagine? That's so the, beautiful. Yeah. How does something just go from something bad happening to trauma, right? And so let's say losing your keys. Losing your keys doesn't necessarily have to become a traumatic event if you get the care around that that you need, right? And then it gets resolved properly. Or maybe a better example is uh, falling and scraping your leg. If you get the proper medical treatment, it's probably not gonna become a big deal. You're gonna put a little Neosporin on it, slap a Band-Aid on it, yeah. and be able to move forward. But if you don't get the proper medical treatment, it can fester. And we all know, like, if a cut doesn't get cleaned out, then it can get infected, then it can spread. And then, like, before we know it, it can end up in something crazy, like a staph infection or sepsis or something, right? Like, yes. because we didn't get the care and treatment we needed. So if you just had every interaction with this idea, even with your coach, right, you wrapping your arms around her, which feels good to you because you want to say thank you, but you don't know what's going on for her and what she might need in that moment 
that you provide that at the same time. <laughs> right. I mean, to me, that. that is the beautifulness of the whole thing is like, yes, this is about me finally getting to say thank you for something she doesn't even know she did. And at the same time, I don't know where she is in something happening for her. And this may heal that. Yeah. Right. That may give her the care she needs to not let it fester and turn into something traumatic. That's just a beautiful, oh my gosh, if we could all just approach the world and one another that way. Wow. So when people say to me, I don't know what I can do. Like, I can't be a foster parent. I can't, I don't have any money to give. Like, you, you don't need any of that. We don't need any money. We just really need people to care about people. Yes. My, my mom is a huge um, St. Teresa, the little flower fan. And I think she always used to tell me, do little things with great love. And that's what I, I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking of there. Yeah. Just the little connections, but do it with great love. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Right. What would you do um, if it was someone you loved and cared about? So when people say they have, the, we have these big problems, like what do we do about the opioid epidemic? What do we do about criminal justice reform? What do we do about the immigration situation? What do we do about these like seemingly really big problems? And I, I mean, my response is always the same. What would you do if it was people you loved and cared about in your own family? Right. Do that. Right. So whatever you would do if they were yours, right? So if those incarcerated people were your family and you loved and cared about them, what would you do? If, if people with opioid addictions were your own family, brothers, sisters, children, what would you do? If, right? If, if those immigrant children were your own, what would you do? So it's, for me, it is this just idea of what would love do? Yes. Right? Like, and if we lead from that position, the problem really doesn't seem as large. Right. And so I lead from that position. And when I feel like there's someone in my way, like there's someone preventing me from doing what love would do. My question is, what has happened to them? Because I have to understand that everyone I come in contact with, regardless, has a story. And I find myself saying this in this world of politics we live in, right? All the time, which is from the White House down, there is trauma. And so when you can say, what has happened to that individual? And you can put yourself in an empathetic place. It doesn't mean you have to agree with behavior. Right. It just means... I understand that something's happened that causes them to react in trauma brain. Yes. Yes. And, and when you can understand that and start to begin to see it, your approach to the solution is much different than the constant attack because the constant attack won't get you anywhere. It just will keep them in trauma brain and saying, see, I have to keep myself safe. Cause that's our instinct as humans, regardless of how much money we have or how little money we have. If we're black, white, brown, or yellow, if we're men or women, if whatever, we're all trying to survive. And right. so when someone is constantly attacking, they're in survival mode. You know, when I see a person at a store who is having a meltdown at the cashier, right? Like it's not about whatever you think it's about. Something's happening for that person. And when you can back up and see that, your way to approach it is much different. And you can really come from what would love do then. Yeah. Well, just such a place of compassion, I think, at that right. point. Yes, absolutely. And there's really no other place to be. Right. 
I think we get in a place where it's comfortable to want to blame others. It's yeah. them. It's the government. It's those people over there. It's those people over here. And it's like, it's you. <laughs> like the work is you. And it's hard to take that responsibility that like, I have to be okay in order to do any good work. Yes. Amen and hallelujah. And I've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast, but I just, I, I want to bring it up again. I, I had been through a bank robbery and uh, one of my coworkers was murdered. And um, so I had to testify at this trial and so forth. And it was horrific for years, but then I reached this point in my journey in my healing journey where I said, you know, this assailant, was born this little innocent creature and I was born this little innocent creature and we both went through our trauma. I chose this path. He chose this path. Um, but somewhere along the way, I said, I don't know his story. I don't know what happened to him and I'm not excusing his behaviors, but I'm forgiving him for this past that he was never able to resolve, that he never had the opportunity to resolve his trauma. Um, and so it, it freed me. And I know um, if all of us can just start to approach other people who have harmed us, I'm, I'm working through it with my alcoholic mother, you know, and her trauma is finally starting to come to the surface at 83 years old. And I'm being able to take a step back and go, oh, that's why, right? Yeah, this yeah. is making sense. <laughs> I think it's so interesting that you say that. So I'm thinking of a couple things, and I talk about a story in the book when my husband, I was actually um, very pregnant with my daughter, and my husband and I were doing a trial for a gentleman accused of killing his girlfriend. And he eventually was convicted of that crime, and he's currently in prison for that crime. I would agree that that's probably where he deserves to be. But what I know that most people don't know is his story before that crime and his story of a little boy and the story of his three brothers who are also all in prison as of today um, for either rape or murder. And I know their story of sexual abuse at the hands of their father um, about the things that their father, you know, pushed on them as tiny children. And although you can say, well, they made it a choice as adults, which I fully agree, but I also feel like we have to accept our responsibility as failing as citizens when they were victims themselves. And I think that's something that we don't do a good job of specifically in the criminal justice, because that's usually one thing where people are like, forgiveness in the criminal justice system. The problem is, is that we can still be trauma-informed and hold people accountable. Yeah. Those things are not mutually exclusive. People can be held accountable for their actions in a trauma-informed way. Yes. And so it's not that this is a story to say, I think these people should be let out. What it's a story of is, how are you going to change it so there's less people getting to that point? Because there were many red flags before these events occurred. It's, it's, it's highly unlikely. It rarely happens where someone kills someone before a lot of other red flags happened right for which we turn our back on for which we say oh that doesn't mean much or oh it's it'll be fine they'll figure it out you know um look you figured it out or shen you figured it out and you didn't become a murderer and it's like um that's a that's a big chance you're yes. <laughs> right I, I i don't like those odds is sort of what i say so you know we we had an opportunity with those boys as children to do some work that we didn't do 
And as a community member, I feel like I have a duty to say, I screwed up, but I'm not going to continue to screw up. And I think that's where there's some disconnect in current society where we just say, I don't have any responsibility for that guy who robbed a bank. Right. Right. He's just a bad person. And it's so easy to blame a bad person. Um, that, that becomes our excuse. Yeah. It's sort of like, I don't have time. That's just an excuse, right? I, to me, the modern excuse of not dealing with my trauma is I don't have time. Right. And I don't have time to exercise. I don't have time to eat right. I don't have time to do X, Y, and Z is our new excuse to say, I want to deal with it. Right. Yes. You know? I laugh only because it's, I mean, yes, I shouldn't laugh, but it's true. Right? So anytime I hear someone say, I just don't have enough time, myself included, in my mind, there is a little voice going, you're so ridiculous. <laughs> I know I have more, like, I could absolutely um, watch less TV. I could absolutely spend less time on social media. I could absolutely get up 20 minutes earlier. I could absolutely go to bed 20 minutes later. I could absolutely get myself organized so making my breakfast took less time. I could do a trillion things that would have me have more time. I'm just choosing not to do that stuff. Right, right. And I think that's right, because I don't want to be responsible. Yes. <laughs> And it's easier. I mean, it, yeah, it's just easier yeah. to not have the time. Or right. I should say not have the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so it's just our excuse to say, I don't want to deal with that. Right. So whenever someone says it, that's what I hear. I just don't want to deal with that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I know we're, I could sit here and talk to you for hours on end because. Well, let's do it. Amazing. And I love it. And yeah, I can make it a two part, two -part <laughs> podcast. That would be awesome. But I want to give you the opportunity to touch on anything that, else that you haven't um, touched on that you would like to talk about. Well, I, you know, I don't know, right? Like, I feel like there's a thousand things yes. to touch on. And I think at the end of the day, it's just, how are you going to do your own work? Like, what are you going to tackle, right? For you, what are you going to heal? And start with something little. Why, why do you hate tomatoes? Right? Do you really understand that? Or do you just hate tomatoes? Right? Whatever it is for you, that is this thing. Why? And are you willing to spend some time examining it and figuring it out and understanding it? And two, can you just try to be that positive, stable adult for one interaction that you have today? And whoever that's for, right? Someone at the grocery store, someone in your church community, a neighbor, um, a mom you see who is at her wit's end, who's dragging three kids trying to get to school drop-off, you know, and just needs someone to tell her she looks good today, right? Like, yes. Yes. Right? Like, we have that in us. It's free. Like, it doesn't cost us anything. And so if we can all just, like, add one more to our day, like, it doesn't take much to get to that tipping point that Malcolm Gladwell talks about all the time, right? Like the tipping point can happen and it just takes us all like, Hey, one more compliment. How hard can that be? A day? <laughs> right. And then, you know, that's how many million billion across the world. Right. <laughs> just that That's it. Just like one compliment. Like who could you pay a compliment to today where you don't want anything from it? Like maybe it's not even someone, you know, beautiful. 
I love right? it. Just one more. And I think that's how we can begin to promote real healing. Yes. Well, you, you so just made me figure out why I hate tomatoes. So that was. Oh, uh, see. Oh, you were talking. See. Well, I, I, that was so cool because you said I hate tomatoes. And instantaneously I had a flash. And this is probably EMDR at work. But I had a flash of my mom. She's, she's a gourmet cook. And so but an alcoholic and we did not have a healthy childhood with her and oh my god she would serve these gigantic chunks of tomato in, the, in like our spaghetti sauce and I would always pull it aside and she would make fun of me and she would ridicule and critique and and I just to this day I'm like I just won't eat a big chunk of tomato <laughs> so funny Terry because I don't eat tomatoes which is why I brought it up but everyone I know who won't eat tomatoes like it's specifically a chunk of raw tomato Yes. Always. Like people are like, no, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine with like cooked tomatoes. Yeah, that's fine. But like a raw tomato on a hamburger, disgusting, which is oh, yeah. <laughs> it is tied to a relationship with our parents and eating as a child. And it's wow. just so interesting to me that most of us just like, so why don't you eat that? We just are like, I just don't like it. And it's like, no, there's a reason you don't yes. like it. It's not just right. And I tell people all the time, some of them I try to work to overcome. Like, I can get myself over this. And some I've just come to realize, no, I just don't like it. And I'm not going to ever like it. And I'm okay with it. <laughs> and it's okay. <laughs> but I think it's an interesting thing for us to really understand ourselves and our healing, right? Is that all of those things in our lives are tied to something. Yes. Terry and I weren't just born to not like tomatoes. <laughs> right. It's true. It's so true. Well, I have to ask you one of my favorite questions. Yes. I want to get it in. So if you could meet anyone in the world, dead or alive, to help you with your continued journey, and it could be personal, professional, or both, who would it be? So that's a really hard question for me, but probably not for the reason you think. First, one of my hobbies is genealogy. And so there was a lot of healing for me when I began working on my genealogy and I could sort of skip my, my parents and begin looking at my ancestors to sort of start understanding historical trauma and, and how and why my family was shaped the way it was shaped, right? Like, and to find some pride in family, which was something I was severely lacking. It was sort of nice to be like, hey, I have these people in my life who did these really amazing things at one time, right? That I'm related to by DNA. And so personally, there are some missing gaps and brick walls where it's like, oh, I know exactly the person I would need to ask to figure out all these family secrets that I'm so desperately in need of. So I have like, I'm thinking of like eight people, right? Like right, right. famous that no one knows on your podcast or I'm like, they could really fill in some gaps. Um, one of which is my mom's mom where it's like, I need to understand more. Right? <laughs> like, so I think personally, there is definitely that gap. Um, and then I think there's like really interesting people who had really interesting theories and had they know what we know now, would they have the same theory? And so I think of people like Nikola Tesla or uh, Viktor Frankl, where I'm just like, if they knew this information yeah. about the brain science, would it affect the work that they were doing that we've only just started now understanding? And so like, those are my, like, if I could have a dinner conversation. Yeah. <laughs> 
funny. Let me get you up to speed, Nikola Tesla. Now tell me, what do you think? Um, I don't know. I have so many people. Yeah. That's a really hard question. You could just you can just make it a party and yeah, invite them all. Can I have them all? I mean, I think it's one of the things um, that would be worthy. You know, people say when you get to heaven, you get to have these conversations. I'm like, that would make it totally worth it. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm getting into heaven, but if I am, that, that would make it totally worth it. For just me. make a list and be like, all right, these are the people I want to meet. So have them. Right? Because how do we continue that amazing work for me? Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. after who who will keep doing the work? And they do, right? Like, someone right. always steps up and continues the work. I've never shared this on air, but I'm related to my dad did love the whole genealogy thing. And so before he passed, he did a, a bunch of work. And his cousin wrote a book about the history on my dad's side <laughs> of the family. And it was fascinating because we found out we're related to William Bonney, who is Billy the Kid. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But isn't it interesting? Like, see, those are the pieces where you begin to start to understand a family history in a way that you really can't without those missing pieces. And I'm always so flabbergasted by the stuff people don't tell us. Yeah. Like, how did that go out of your family history and did right. it really get passed down? I'm guessing embarrassment because he was a violent criminal. I mean. Right. So. You would think that like there was no thought like, well, it, I mean, clearly they thought it's just him. It's not in our genes right. anywhere. Right. <laughs> like, the black sheep. We're going to not, we're doing ignore that he's part of our family. Yeah. It's so amazing because yeah. um, you can see so many trends in my family on both sides where you're just like, this is really genetic. Yeah. <laughs> Right, right. Really passing this down. And then, you, then I start to think, and but now we're learning so much about the brain and all of that that yeah. we can stop it. We can stop that that yes. generational trauma from. Because we know it's cellular, right? Yeah. But if it's being passed down cellularly through your genes and nobody does anything to change it, it will continue to be. But then, if someone comes along and says, "I'm changing it," it changes. Yes. Like, that's what we know about trauma is that it, that's why it's connected to heart disease and cancer. Like, we know the things that happen to us change us on a cellular thing. That's the amazing part of the science piece. And it's like, and even though it's genetic, we can change it. Right. Right. Well, so, I do want to give you an opportunity to talk another question that I have. Um, and we've, I know we've touched on it, touch and go here, but any, any myths or facts that you want to clarify for listeners? Well, I think the this idea that, um, and, and something that I hear quite a bit, I think because I work with children so much, is some people are born bad. And there's been a lot of debate. I mean, there are books and books and, and people who will probably debate what I say here. But the truth is, is I've never held a baby that was evil. Right. And I've not found anybody who's told me that they've held an evil baby. And that of its own tells me that there is no such thing. That yes, I've held colicky babies. Yes, I've held sick babies. Right. Um, yes, I've held babies that have been in, in days through more than some grown people I know. But I've never held an evil baby. And so that tells me that there's things that we adults do 
that cause people to become evil. And if we cause people to become evil, we can cause people to unbecome. And that nobody is destined for any one story. Right. I, I just truly believe that. I'm right there with you. I agree. The man who who robbed the 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 place and, yeah. and someone was killed is not destined for that to be the only story. In my case, the person who killed his girlfriend is not destined for that to be. They can choose it to be their only story, but I don't think anyone is destined to be that be the end. I think everybody has the opportunity for redemption and for goodness and for change. I believe that fully. I believe that can happen. Uh, I believe that some people don't choose that for that to be. I believe some people want to be in trauma brain. Some people want to be stuck in victimization. It, at some point, we have to admit our choice in it right? That, that you choose to get up every day and do what you do. I choose to get up every day and do what I do. And other people choose other things. And I can still love them immensely, even when they're making a choice that I don't agree with. But nobody is born predestined to be evil. Right. And I... Or bad. Or, yeah. whatever, or whatever word you want to input. I, I just don't think that's the case. And I think we have the power to, to tip it into our favor. Yes. Well, I just, I, what I thought was, what if of the two murderers we both know, yeah. what, what if they had had a grandma kitty? What if they had had a teacher for two weeks who told them, you're really good at that? That's right. What if they had the soccer coach. What if, and, and again, what if they just had the person, like you said, that complimented them on something that they were doing or a gift that they had? I just noticed. Yeah. Just noticed, right? I think that's a big just noticed. I mean, I, I can tell you in my own, how many times where I felt like I was alone, completely isolated, completely without anyone. Um, you know, cause I didn't have brothers and sisters. Right. So like there was no one at times, um, and feeling like even when I was in college where I said, if I disappeared, I don't even think anyone would report me missing. Oh. Right. So those moments of someone just noticing, yeah. You exist can be healing. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the power. I think we have to, but again, we have to say we have ownership in this and we have ownership in what's happening. And I think we have to get over the finding someone to blame and just accepting and saying, I'm going to do different. I know better now. And so I'll do better in the future. I didn't know better then. And I'm not going to punish myself for what I did. Right now I'm going to make a new choice. Yes. And that's all we can do. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I've loved everything <laughs> of it. So thank you. Well, good. We can have coffee and another conversation anytime you'd like. Oh my gosh. <laughs> absolutely on it. Yes. Okay. I love it. So good, Terry, thanks for allowing me to be on your show. And I hope that your listeners enjoyed it and uh, always look forward. Let's stay connected on social media as well. I'm pretty easy to find. Wonderful. Yeah, I will. I will reach out as well. So everyone, thank you for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And remember, until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye bye.